So if you have a Bible with you, um, the first place that you're going to want to be turning is 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. Uh, So in Shakespeare's Macbeth, anybody familiar with Macbeth at all? In Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, Macbeth is a a Scottish lord who receives this this prophecy, this prediction, uh, that he will become king. Uh, Now, he hadn't ever considered being king prior to that, but um, once that idea was in his head, it really began to appeal to him and also to Lady Macbeth, his wife. Uh, And so in in their uh, eagerness to take the throne, uh, he and his wife conspired to kill King Duncan. Uh, And now, while Macbeth was originally a little bit hesitant to take such drastic action, uh, Lady Macbeth convinces him that uh, a little water clears of us, us of this, meaning that once they wash the physical blood off of their hands, they will be free of further reproach. So their plan works, right? But it requires them to continue to kill again and again to keep that first murder hidden and to further secure their power. Uh, and eventually the guilt comes to have a, a psychological effect on Lady Macbeth who is observed wandering the halls of the castle in her sleep, washing her hands, saying, out, out, damn spot, out, I say. And, and then a little bit later on, will these hands ever be clean? And so it's that question of guilt and of being cleansed of guilt that we will be addressing today. Can a man's or, or a woman's hands ever be truly free of the stain of their sins? So our story today begins with King David, the second king of Israel. He's a shepherd boy that God has used in in mighty ways. And our story this morning finds David at the height of his power. His enemies are on the run. The country is secure. The Ark of the Covenant has been uh, returned to Jerusalem. Life is good. However, that's where the problem begins. David has gotten a little too comfortable in his success. And so we see this in in 2 Samuel 11, where it opens, and it says, In the spring of the year, in the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So throughout much of human history, existence has been so tenuous, so hand-to-mouth, that there was a fighting season. A period of time where it wasn't too rainy to march an army across the country, and they weren't trying to plant or they weren't trying to harvest. And so during that time, a king would call together all of the fighting men and go off to war. And so it was that time of, his, of year, and Israel had gone to war. But instead of being led by their king, they were led by Joab, David's general. And this was a problem because leading the country in war was one of the chief duties of the king of Israel. And David was shirking that responsibility. Now, have you ever noticed that this is basically how you end up getting in too deep? You don't end up in the middle of a major mess, just kind of all of the sudden, right? But you work your way into that mess bit by bit. You don't end up drunk in a ditch all of the sudden. But it starts by being somewhere that you shouldn't be, around people that you probably shouldn't be around, drinking a little more than is good for you, and so it builds slowly and and with deniability, 
right? You can justify being there. You can justify staying there. There are good reasons that you tell yourself and others, but in the end, you end up in over your head because of the cumulative effect of all of those little steps that led you there. And that's what happens here, right? Because David was not out with his troops, because he wasn't where he should have been, he sees something that he shouldn't have seen, and he has a conversation that he shouldn't have had. He sees this woman named Bathsheba bathing in her home, and he has her brought before him for a private audience. The power imbalance being what it is, David takes Bathsheba to bed and sends her home. And at this point, we don't have a great deal of insight into David's mind, but he has just, apparently, gotten away with adultery. Right? He brought in another man's wife and slept with her. However, as Numbers 32 tells us, you can be sure that your sin will find you out. Not too much time passes, and Bathsheba sends word that she is pregnant. This presents David with a significant problem, right? Because her husband, Uriah, is one of David's finest fighting men, and he's away with Joab at war, where David should be. <clears throat> so it's not going to be difficult for people to figure out that, one, this is not Uriah's kid, and two, the only thing that has happened out of the ordinary is Bathsheba's private audience with David. Uh, so David, thinking quickly, brings Uriah back from the front and tells him to go home and enjoy his wife. But Uriah is a, is a better leader. He's a better man than, than David is in this case. And he refuses to enjoy the comforts of his, of his home while his men are out on the field sleeping, and sleeping on the ground. David even tries, goes so far as to try to get him drunk enough to forget his men, but still Uriah won't go home. Uh, now, if David gets found out here, if this all comes to light, if this gets revealed, there will be trouble for him. He will have alienated one of his uh, 30 famous mighty men, and others in that group will likely take his side. This is how kingdoms fall. Um, with internal fractures and power struggles and deceit. And so David decides, I'm going to put an end to this. Not by confessing and repenting, right? But by doubling down on his sin. He sends Uriah back to the battle with sealed orders for the general, for Joab, to send Uriah into the thick of the battle and then pull back, leaving him to be killed. So what David is planning here is nothing short of murder and to add insult to injury, he sends Uriah back to the front, carrying the sealed orders that are going to lead to his death. So the plan works. Uriah is killed in battle, and David takes Bathsheba as his wife after that official mourning period is over. And so everything has been hushed up successfully. Right? They've managed to hide their sin. And all that it took all that it took was a king betraying the sacred trust of his country and killing one of his own men. That's it. Now, for some people, the guilt and the shame of what they had done and the stress of keeping it covered up would have been enough of a punishment. For some people, like Lady Macbeth, it would have been enough to drive them to insanity. But David seemed content to cover it up and leave it at that. However, the Bible tells us in, in Mark 4, 22, that nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. 
And Psalm 90 says that, that you, that God, has set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So the story picks up then in, uh, in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan, who was a prophet, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore to the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So in this passage, the prophet Nathan confronts David by telling him this story of something that has apparently happened somewhere in the kingdom. And on hearing it, David is outraged, rightly so, because what happened here is a travesty. It's, a, it's an abuse of power. And he says that not only will the man be required to make restitution, as is required by the law, but he also deserves to die. Now, have you ever noticed that sometimes the things that bother us the most about other people are the things that bother us the most about ourselves? You know, a, a liar always thinks that the people around him are lying to him. Uh, a, a cheat always believes that they are being cheated. We become particularly sensitive to our own sins when they are in the lives of those around us. And we see that happening here, right? David sees this rank injustice, this abuse of power, and he is absolutely outraged by it. How dare someone abuse their position of power and authority to take what his servant had? Do you see the hypocrisy here? David's heart is inflamed and sensitive about this very subject, specifically because he has spent so much emotional energy trying to hide this exact same sin in his own life. And so having drawn out David's passion on the subject, Nathan continues in a way that brave doesn't quite cut it. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. For ye, um, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. 
So I pray that, that I would have and that you would have a Nathan in your life who is willing to speak the truth to you when you need it. He calls David out on his lies. He calls David out on his adultery, on his hypocrisy. And he calls David out on murder. And so through Nathan, God tells David, hey, I gave you everything that you could ever want. And I would have given you so much more, but you weren't satisfied with what I had given you. You took it on yourself to reach out your hand and take something that wasn't yours. More than that, he continues, you haven't stopped at adultery and deceit, but you've tried to cover it up with murder. And so because of what you have done, because of this, murder and violence, the sword, will never leave your family. Now, all of David's future hangs on how he will respond here. Because he already had one opportunity, and he didn't repent, right? He doubled down on his sin. And he could have done that here, right? He could have dragged Nathan outside of the palace, chopped his head off, told everybody nobody ever speaks of this again on pain of death. He could have, he could have tried to cover up his sin. But there is no running from the judgment of God. So to see how David responds, we're going to turn then to Psalm 51. So this is a, this is a psalm, a song that David wrote in, uh, in response to this situation. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> so to start off with, there are a few things that we need to take note of here. And the first is that David did not try to minimize his sin. He didn't try to sidestep it. Instead, he faced his sin head on, admitting the seriousness of his sin in, in verses 3 and 4 and talking about how God's judgment on him is justified. 
and God is blameless in the matter. And to emphasize this point in in verses 5 and 6, he talks about how from the time of his conception, his heart was inclined towards sin. And in contrast to that, God delights in the truth. Now, this is one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith, that God is holy and we are sinful. We fall short. We miss the mark. And because of that, as verse 4 says, we all are subject to God's judgment. He will punish us for our sin, for our rebellion, and for our treason against the king of creation. And at the very least, David acknowledges that his sin has this potential to cause a a rift, a separation between himself and, and the God that he loves. In verse 11, he sings, pleading with God to not cast him away, which he deserves, and to not take God's Holy Spirit from him, again, which he deserves, and which he watched happen with King Saul just a few years before. But there's a problem here a problem of sin and of guilt and of justice. Because David has sinned against Bathsheba by abusing his power to have sex with her, a woman that he was not married to. David sinned against Uriah by murdering him. David sinned against Joab, his general, by making him an accomplice to that murder. David sinned against his people by betraying their trust and abusing his power. He used it for his own satisfaction rather than for the good of the people that he was leading. But above all, Above all, as it says in verse 4, David sinned against God. In his adultery, he rebelled against the covenant-keeping nature of God, who always keeps his promises. In murdering Uriah, he assaulted and killed a fellow image-bearer of that divine image, which God considers equivalent to an assault on himself. All sin, ultimately, is a sin against a perfect and holy God, and justice must be done for that sin. So when we do wrong, when we do damage to someone or or something, right, we're taken to court and made to pay restitution or damages, right? If we've caused $1,000 in damage, we need to pay at least $1,000 in restitution, right? Because that's fair. That is just. That is justice. But if we're in that situation and the judge lets us walk off without paying anything, we would not say that justice has been done, right? Instead, we would say that the justice was not served in that situation. And one of the attributes that we read about in the Bible, uh, one of the attributes of God that we read about in the Bible is his justice, Right? There's lots of examples, but uh, just one in, in Deuteronomy 32.4. It says that his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God is perfectly just, which means that there is no way that he can fail to be perfectly just. He has to see justice done. And so, because of that, every person must pay the penalty for their sin against God. There's no time off for good behavior. There's no leniency because of his just nature. And so, because of that just nature and because of his desire to have relationship with sinful people like you and I, 
there has to be some mechanism for people to pay for their sins. The theological word for this is, is atonement, right? Under the old covenant, the promise between God and the promise that God had made to Israel, atonement was made by sacrificing an animal. And by shedding the blood of that animal, God considered the price of that sin to have been paid. So whether it was a dove or a lamb or a bull, to atone for sin, a person had to shed blood. This is what it tells us in in Hebrews 9.22. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But David has an issue. Because there are two sins in the law for which there are not enough bulls. There are not enough sheep. There are not enough goats to make atonement for those sins. Those sins are adultery and murder. The way that those sins were paid for, the way that a sinner made atonement for those sins, was by shedding not the blood of an animal, but by the shedding of their blood. These two sins demanded capital punishment, death by stoning. David couldn't buy his way out of them. He couldn't talk his way out of it. David needed to die for these sins. And David knew this. David knew this because the king, when he first took the crown, was to handwrite a copy of the book of the law so that he would be sure to know what was required of him and what was required of his people. So this is why in in verse 16, he said, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He knows that there is nothing that he can do. There are no sacrifices. There are no burnt offerings that he can make that will atone for his sins. But yet David writes in this psalm, that he wants God to blot out his iniquities, to deliver him from blood guiltiness. He believes that God can wash him thoroughly from his iniquity and cleanse him from his sin. David believed that God could cleanse him from his uncleansable sin, that he could wash clean the hands that were permanently stained with blood, like Lady Macbeth's. So David knew what God could do. David knew that God could do this. But what he didn't know at that time was how. However, 1 Peter 1 talks about how the things that the prophets spoke of, the things that they longed to see, are the things that we know. And the things that we know to be true are the things that the angels have longed to look at. We know today what David only dreamed of. In Hebrews 10, 11, the writer says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So he makes this observation that the blood of animals can never make true, full atonement for our sins. There is always going to be something lacking in that. And in the case of of murder or adultery like David, they are utterly insufficient. We know this to be true. Right? We know this experientially to be true. If I tell a lie about you, I might apologize. You might forgive me. I might even pay money by way of restitution. Right? But that doesn't completely restore the relationship. 
right? Our relationship will always carry the scar of that lie. If I ran into your car while I was pulling cookies, right? I may pay to have your car fixed, but there's always going to be something different about the nature of our relationship. I can never fully make atonement for that sin. So making atonement like that is, is insufficient. And so no matter how long the priest stands there, slaughtering animals, shedding their blood, those atoning sacrifices were never going to be enough to completely restore what had been broken by sin. So every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So David knew that God was the only one who could wash him clean from his sin. He knew that God could do it, but he was unclear as to how that would happen. We, however, we know today that the hope that David has was fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ, in his perfect life, demonstrated his his ability, his worthiness to be the perfect sacrifice required to atone for David's sin and for my sin and for your sin. He was worthy and he was the blood sacrifice for us on the cross so that by his life and his death, he was the one who did what David needed to be washed clean from his sin. Christ was the one who did what I needed to be washed clean from my sin. And Christ is the one who has done what you need to be washed clean from your sin. And so in his death, Christ made full atonement for our sin. He made us right with God. And by our shared faith in that atonement, he is working on making us right with one another. But before we are washed clean, there is a condition that has to be met, right? If we want forgiveness, we cannot remain proud and defiant. We cannot remain in rebellion against God. But instead, we need what's listed in in verse 17, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. We must repent of our sins. We must leave behind our rebellion. We must turn away from the evil that we have been doing And with a heart that is broken by the pain that we have caused by our sin, we must seek his forgiveness. To carry on the story, 2 Samuel 12, 13, after having been confronted, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So the last thing to note about this story is that even though David has repented, and even though he has been forgiven by the grace of God, there are still consequences for his sin. 
The child born of this union will die. This is something that we sometimes forget, right? We treat God's forgiveness as this magic wand that just undoes all of the hurt and the pain that we've caused by our sin. But until he returns, that's simply not the case. We can repent. We can be forgiven, but there are consequences to our sin that may follow us to the grave. However, however, God, by his grace, will sometimes redeem those consequences and redeem our sin. He will take the things that we meant for evil, the things that we meant as sin, and he'll reshape them, and he will use them for good. And ultimately, that's what ends up happening here, right? David lusted after Bathsheba. Lust turned to adultery, and adultery to lies, and lies to murder. But God ended up using Bathsheba as the mother of the royal line of David that would end up seeing its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We may not see it, we may not be privy to it, but God truly does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is redemption. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the redemptive story that you and I are called to, to, to be a part of. We're called to participate in it as we ask God to redeem the sin of our lives and to use it to accomplish beautiful and wonderful things. And this is what participation in that looks like. We are called to love God in response to his mercy and his grace towards us by sending Christ to be the atoning sacrifice on our behalf, fully paying up all of that sin debt that we have ever or will ever accrue. In the face of that sort of love, in the face of that sort of grace and mercy and kindness and faithfulness, what response is possible from us except to love? So this was David's response, right? He loved God for his goodness and mercy towards him. And out of that love for God flows this love for other people because it is impossible for us, having been forgiven, all of that that we have been forgiven to then withhold forgiveness from others. It is impossible for us who have been loved with such a love as this to withhold that love from others. And finally, that love for others will result in us calling those around us to repentance and faith in Christ. This was the overflow that, that David arrived at in, uh, in verses 12 and 13 where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So what David is saying there is essentially this. God, if you will forgive me of this, I will be so overwhelmed by your goodness that I'm not going to be able to help myself. I will teach everybody around me who is still fighting you to come to you the same way that I did, to have their sins forgiven and to be washed clean. So that is where David ended up. And that is where you and I should end up as well. Because we are really no better off than he is or was. Our sins might look a little bit different, 
But they are sins against a holy God, just the same as David's were. And they have earned us the same blood-stained hands that David had. So how will those hands become clean? Will you wander the halls of your life as Lady Macbeth did, furiously scrubbing at unseen blood, trying to be rid of the guilt that her sins had brought her? Or, like David, will you turn to God and ask him to wash you, ask him to cleanse you, though your sins are as scarlet? Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be washed as clean and white as wool if you will turn away from your sin and turn to our Heavenly Father in repentance and faith in Christ's ability to wash you clean from the stain of that sin. Let's pray together. Father, this is what we desire. We long to be made clean. We long to see the relationships that have been broken by our sin, that relationship with you restored. God, we want... God, we want nothing more than to be free. Free of, free of that stain, free of the shame, free of that blood guiltiness, the, the blood that is on every one of our hands, God. So we turn to you because we know, Father, that you will forgive. That you, by, by the blood of Christ, will wash us clean. So, Father, my faith today is not in the fact that I'm a good person. My faith today is not in the fact that in, in the hope that I might be able to do better as time goes on. But God, my faith today is in Christ. I am relying on what he has done to wash me clean from the stain of sin. So Father, I thank you for that. And I praise you. I praise you, God, for that great gift. And I praise you for the forgiveness that you offer so lavishly. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.